This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Camfield. Hello. On this week's show, David and Rebecca will catch us up on the many goings-on around Los Angeles, including the Independent Spirit Awards and the Academy's Nominees Luncheon. And then Joe Reed, returning guest, will join Richard and me to talk about the Oscar-nominated shorts, our annual tradition. And then the show will end with Rebecca's conversation with Kieran Hines, a supporting actor nominee for Belfast. So David and Rebecca, you guys are on the ground in L.A. And for the first time in a long time, that that really does mean being in the presence of other people. Um, you know, we had the SAG Awards last week. We talked about those. But you were both really busy over the last couple of days. Um, so um, I might just start with recency bias and start with the latest event as we record this. But Rebecca, you were at the nominees luncheon on Monday, um, which just looked delightful. Everyone looked great. The interactions were great. The menu looked a little sad. You can report back on the food. Um, but uh, but how was it? Did it feel normal and buzzy and fun? It felt almost freakishly normal, I have to say. <laughs> um, you know, we all had to provide negative tests to attend and proof of vaccination. Um, but once you walked into that room, it was definitely the most crowded room I've been in. Um, you know, you had to kind of like snake your way through all the elbows and and that um, I hadn't experienced yet since coming back out into the world. You know, SAG Awards was in a big ballroom with very high ceilings, or I guess <laughs> an airplane hanger, right? So it felt very um, airy. And this was like a low ceilinged hotel, you know, room. Um, so it did take me a minute to be like, okay, I guess we're doing this. Um, mm -hmm. But it was so nice. It's such a positive event because it's not televised. There are no winners. It's really to celebrate the nominees and um, they mix up all the tables. So you're not sitting with your film. You're sitting with a sound designer from West Side Story and a, a director from Licorice Pizza. You know, it's just a, a random mix. So and then they kind of sprinkle the press throughout um, 
via a literal lottery, like you turn a little wheel and a ball comes out and the number is the table you're sitting on. So, <laughs> Yeah, when you bragged about your table and you can reveal who you're at the table with, I was like, oh, well, it's like maybe someone in the academy you really wanted to give Rebecca a thing. But no, you literally drew a ball. <laughs> you literally drew a bowl. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's, I don't know, it's very charming the way they do it. Um, so I really had a, had a good time, I have to say. So who's at your table? So my table, I was at table number one, and even the other press were like, you got table one? So I, <laughs> apparently that was a big deal. But it was um, Denis Villeneuve, um, Anjanou Ellis, a, a producer of Flea, um, David Lindy, who runs Participant uh, and is also a, a very active in the Academy, um, and Paul Taswell, who did the costume design for West Side Story. So just a wonderful group, a few I had interviewed before. It's just a really nice mix, you know, and every table is kind of like that. And you get to see these sort of random interactions, which is really, really fun. So what was everybody talking about amongst themselves? I think we were both kind of prepared for the um, the category decision to be part of the conversation. And it wasn't mentioned on stage, but I have to assume that someone was chattering about it. Yeah, there was some chatter about it. You know, I I overheard, um, you know, David Rubin, who is the president of the Academy, he gave a really nice speech, um, but didn't mention it. And and I overheard him after he left the stage joking with someone that, you know, nobody threw anything at me. So he obviously is feeling um, the heat. <laughs> but um, yeah, and... But it, 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 of course, was a topic in the room. I think, you know, those of us who are pressed were kind of asking people about it. So obviously it was coming up that way. But it did feel like the tone of the room was so much about appreciating everyone who was nominated that it's almost like they got to have that moment now mm. if, if it's going to get all messed up during the Oscars, um, which I thought made it feel like a really positive event. And, 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 you know, I spend a lot of time asking people who they think is going to win Best Picture because I of feel course. like that's what I've missed out on is being in those rooms where people can guess. And I got to say, there's a lot there's a lot of buzz about CODA. I mean, the momentum is very, very clear in that room. And a lot of people were saying that it feels like the one that is pushing ahead all of a sudden. So um, I thought that was really interesting to hear from people. Did people think it's going to win or do they just want to talk about it? No, I, a lot of people thought it's going to win. I mean, the, the the overall consensus is that it's just really hard to predict because the Academy has opened up um, internationally so much in its membership in the last few years that, you know, voters from across the world may have more of an influence than they have in the past. And then there being 10 nominees. So because of those reasons, it felt like people thought CODA has a, has a stronger chance than we would have thought maybe, you know, a month ago. Yeah, I hadn't thought before about CODA being a more universal story. I mean, it's obviously adapted from a French film, and, you know, it's not about the myth of the American West. So I I, I only now realize that it might be uh, have a broader appeal in that way. Yeah, and it was really cool because, um, you know, the CODA cast was obviously there and, and had um, interpreters, and there were a couple tables that had, um, you could see people signing, and I'd never been in an, obviously, an awards event, um, like that. And I thought it was just, it was really beautiful. Like the whole room knew how to applause, you know, to do applause um, when, you know, the cast was announced and everything. And I think it's a really wonderful change to to sort of Hollywood's awareness of, of how to do those things. Well, David, you wrote in your write-up of the Indie Spirits, which happened on Sunday, um, that while the, again, were a celebratory moment for a lot of films that might not be Oscar-nominated, but had a kind of um, sobering preview of what this category uh, mess might look like. Uh, so do you want to uh, explain what that looked like? 
Yeah, the spirits, I've covered the spirits before. They have had categories that weren't televised before. So I'm not sure if it was the way it was handled, which certainly was part of it, or the general mood around (laughs) booting categories off of a live telecast. But Mm -hmm. the show was progressing pretty, you know, normally. We had Troy Kotzer win early, and we had a lot of mingling beforehand, and the mood was pretty upbeat. And then... During the commercial breaks, as Rebecca and I will tell you, everyone will get up and start mingling and the press will sort of start circling to get some color and figure out what people are talking about and who's talking to who. And all of a sudden, uh, there's a presenter on the stage in the middle of a commercial break who is kind of not even trying too hard (laughs) to sort of tell everyone to go take their seats again. So we're all just sort of standing watching her, what becomes clear is presenting uh, best editing. And so, you know, unlike the Oscars luncheon, the press is very much at a specific table <laughs> at the Indie Spirit. So a lot of us were rushing back. Uh, and Zola's editor, Joy McMillan, who is also known as Barry Jenkins's um, great editor, uh, won the category. And everyone's still up. And she gets to the stage. And she very pointedly nods to the fact that she had no idea what was happening or that her category was being announced. Uh, and realizing, realizing that she was not on television because it is a live telecast and there were two other categories that were presented that way cinematography that was um passing uh, and he too acknowledged not being on the live telecast and then drive my because passing got totally stumped at the oscars like that was a really big moment yeah and and ruth nega also won supporting actress and she couldn't go because she's in rehearsals for macbeth so it would have been nice to see it get a stage moment it was that was a real bummer um, and he really gave a lovely speech just talking about Rebecca Hall's vision. But anyway, uh, as an aside, uh, and then Drive My Car, I think most controversially was pushed that that Best International Feature win was pushed to the very end of the show uh, in a non-televised presentation. And That's so weird. That, that by that point in the room, there was such a movement of <laughs> really acknowledging those nominees who were not getting on TV. And I did not hear louder applause for any nominee just as they were listed uh, or and announced than for Drive My Car. And when it won, the producer was there. Um, the director, Reisuki Hamaguchi, was uh, not able to attend, um, accepted, and had his interpreter, which you know means the speech can take a little bit longer. And really early on, he gets played off just blasting music. You know, because they have to go back to the show. Um, and the crowd booed really loudly. Um, yeah, it was really something. Uh, and so he ended up finishing the speech and then got a little standing O as he walked off. And it, it felt quite pointed to me. Long way to say that, yes, it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like, you know, not to take away from the, you know, really celebratory mood of both of these events you guys went to, but it does feel like there's a drumbeat. Uh, pushing back against this, like what what we expected when it was announced, it just took a little bit of time. You know, you've got even Steven Spielberg saying that he thinks this category thing is a bad idea. I mean, Richard, you have not been present for any of this, but I think even for the two of us who haven't been there, we've noticed that the pushback is getting louder, even if it might not change anything, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be the dominant discourse about these Academy Awards right now, you know, which is certainly not what anyone was <laughs> was was hoping for on that side of things. Um, and it also seems to be emerging more and more, maybe, that ABC is the real villain here. Am I totally wrong in that interpretation? Yeah, yeah. No, it is. 
Yeah, there was the piece that Scott Feinberg uh, put out last Friday, I think, saying like with with one anonymous Academy member, and I don't know that there's many verification of it, who claimed that ABC wanted them to cut 12 categories from the air um, or they were going to cancel the contract entirely, which I don't know if that's true, but the, but certainly is a good way to make ABC the villain. I mean, what the hell is Disney doing vis-a-vis gay people right now? <laughs> we're going to cut the Academy Awards in half. We're going to fund the Don't get, Say Gay Bill people. Like, what are you guys doing? But they had uh, all those exclusively gay moments leading up to this. It really, don't you think that balances? Oh, and they canceled the goddamn Beauty and the Beast show. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do do we think, like, the Academy clearly recognized that this is a problem, as you were saying, um, Rebecca, that David Rubin was going to prepare to have tomatoes thrown at him. But what can they do at this point? Like, it, it seems like they're committed to powering through and having everyone kind of scowling at them from the seats when they, you know, show the clips of the best editing award being handed out some point during the telecast it does feel like that yeah they can't go back at this point um which i you know when this was first announced i sort of thought they were going to but i think they're just going to stay on this messaging that like every nom every winner is going to still have their moment um when you know i just don't think that's enough for for many people so yeah it does feel like they can't go back this year i mean i'll be curious to see what changes next year um yeah but it feels like they're stuck doing what they've said they're going to do this time. The best we can hope for is that they never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about what, ha- what the good that happened at the Andy Spirits, David, because I feel like yes. I really set you up to talk about the bad. Um, Aggie Hall had a big day, huh? She had a huge day. And um, like the luncheon, the Spirits are uh, mostly an industry event. I mean, they're broadcast on IFC. It's, they don't get a pretty substantial viewership. Um, so it's it's the same kind of vibe where... You know, it's on, on this tent on the Santa Monica Pier and everyone shows up quite early and mingles outside um, with cocktails and there's the flow inside. And it was a really nice change of pace for this season because you had a lot of films, unusually a lot of films, that were not recognized by the Academy or really even in much Academy consideration that that got their moment here. Like Zola won multiple awards, including Best Actress, uh, Passing, as we just mentioned, won a couple of awards. Um, and other movies that were so far beyond uh, their purview that you had stuff like uh, a film called Seven Days winning Best First Feature or Shiva Baby got a moment on stage, which made me very happy. But that also opened the door, I think, for Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter to totally sweep, um, as it did at the Gotham Awards. Uh, I won Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay. Maggie uh, got to give two speeches and kind of ceded the floor to her fellow producers for the Picture um, Award it's interesting. It's very rare for a film to dominate both the Gothams and Spirits as The Lost Daughter has. Um, the only films that I know of that have swept between screenplay director and um, picture races at both are Spotlight and Moonlight. So hmm. um, both of which won Best Picture. So it's it's interesting that this film, which is a much thornier movie than those two uh, and was more selectively embraced by the Academy, let's say, was able to sort of take that mantle uh, of the indie circuit so commandingly. But I I do think that Maggie Gyllenhaal is in an interesting position in that adapted screenplay race coming out of this, just because it's clear that that pocket of the industry is so behind this film. Yeah. Um, So we'll see. Is she going to beat Jane Campion? Well, you know, Jane Campion, the last time she won an Oscar, it was sort of the opposite, right? Where she was up against Schindler's List and director and picture and she was not going to win for the piano. And so original screenplay was the lane where she could win. And this year, it feels like she is so comfortably out front for director that 
you could see somebody like Maggie Gyllenhaal or maybe Coda, which is also nominated in that category, um, mm. pick up some extra votes there. They also feel like more screenplay plays. Remember, the Academy opens up voting to a wider membership for these wins. And, and I think that there are people who are going to look at Maggie Gyllenhaal, who has been in this industry for a long time and what she did with that movie, uh, and, and maybe want to recognize her. I hadn't thought about Coda potentially in the screenplay thing because I had thought of it as being like Jane Campion or Maggie Gyllenhaal. But, you know, if you don't think that it's going to search for Best Picture and that could be a place to honor that movie that everyone clearly loves and Troy Kotzer, as we said, is probably also going to win. That's um, that's an interesting theory. Even at the Spirits where the movie was eligible and did not do very well, it was only nominated for Supporting Actor. Um, it didn't get into the Best Picture or, or Screenplay races. You know, you had Marley Matlin there to present and Troy Kotzer was there and they were the hits of the room. I, I think that if this movie were contending for Spirits two months later, it probably would have gotten a lot more nominations. It feels like it really built steam uh, in L.A. Uh, among the industry over the last few months. So I felt it, too, and it wasn't even much of a presence there. <laughs> Yeah, that really tells you about building momentum when between nominations and the awards themselves happening, it's um, yeah. way more popular. David, can I ask what the food was at um, Indie Spirits? <laughs> oh, it was a it was a box that was put on our tables upon arrival. There was a jar of chicken and rice salad. There was a jar of hummus. Like picnic chic for the beachfront. I'm gonna be honest. The food at the we've we've had a step down. Um, we need to have a discussion about this. The SAG Awards was also similarly relatively sad. And I don't know. I'm I'm going to these things and I'm expecting a I'm expecting more. I'm, is this because our, nobody's eating though? Like everyone else is on their crazy diets for getting their picture taken. So they're just like, fuck it, we're not gonna feed them. They're not gonna eat it anyway. Maybe I mean, but it feels like versus two years ago. I don't know. Rebecca, yeah. what do you think? It, I mean, it's such first world problems, of course, to complain <laughs> about the food. But at the luncheon, several of my table mates, who I will not name, were very hungry and excited to eat. Like people had were intentionally there to eat lunch, I think. And it is a luncheon. It's advertised. <laughs> and, and you know, when we go to like, I feel like when I go to sort of evening events, I don't ever expect to eat. But I feel like a lunch, you sort of do. And, um, you know, we had this like quinoa chickpea bar thing <laughs> that was you know a lot of these events went vegetarian a few years ago and, and i am not a yeah. big meat, meat eater so i am for that but it is tricky to make vegetarian food that is good and filling and there were some quite a few jokes about the lunch at the luncheon as well you know alfred molina did the sort of announcing of all the nominees names for their photos and he made a joke about how um the lunch probably made everyone super gassy. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a topic of the that when you asked me what the topic in the room was, I should have said it was the food, Katie, because um, I agree, David, it, there's been a there's been a, a shift in the in the two years we've been dark. So I'm ready for better. ABC food. had them cut six courses, right? Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. I don't I mean, want to know what that bar looks like this time around. It's <laughs> honestly a relief because I look at that menu and I'm like, is this what LA is? Like they all just eat this and they think that's lunch. And uh, it, apparently you're all with me. That did not really count as lunch. Yeah. No. How did Alfred Molina wind up with that gig? Like what a perfect choice. But I didn't I didn't know what his, uh, you know, deep academy ties were. I mean, a genius selection. I don't know how it came about, but he read every single name correctly. And, I, you know, we've seen plenty of. Uh, nominations announcements where the names just get so butchered. So 
I feel like everyone should hire him for everything now. <laughs> hire theater people. They yeah. they do the homework. Yeah. Um, Richard, what do you make of the CODA surge or the Lost Daughter surge or any of the kind of movement in the race that seems to be happening with all these events? I mean, the CODA surge feels more and more credible. Again, you know, I'm just osmosing this from people talking about reactions to things and whatnot. I mean, we obviously have the concrete win at the SAGs. I don't know. That'd be interesting. I mean, we've been talking about this movie for a long time now, and I was among the camp who thought that Apple overpaid, that it was it wasn't gonna they weren't gonna get the return on their investment. That clearly seems to have been uh, definitively proven wrong, and I'm just wondering how far that narrative can go. I, I could see it because it again we're just kind of reading tea leaves. Like that might be the sentimental number two on a lot of people who pick things that aren't going to win Best Picture, you know, um, because it has that broad appeal and. You know, there are people like the, everyone's really excited about Kotzer, and so that helps the movie overall. I think Marley Matlin obviously has been a staple of the industry for a long time. So yeah, I could see it happening. I, I also I, I saw a couple tweets intriguingly saying that Anjanu Ellis got a really really warm reception. I think at the luncheon, maybe when they were doing the class of two thousand twenty one mm-hmm. photo, like that she got the most applause. And so that I don't know. I was kind of curious about what that was. Maybe that was just one person kind of reading things, but. I, I don't know. I feel so uncertain now that it's really kind of fun. Well, Richard, I was sitting next to Anjanu, so I think my... <laughs> it was just you it was just me really screaming. loud. <laughs> um, no, I do think that's true. I also, you know, noticed that so many people came up to talk to her throughout the lunch. I don't think she actually got to eat at all. Not that I'm not sure if she wanted to, but... Um, she put the bar in her purse. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it was sort of a nonstop... I don't know, just tons of visitors to to congratulate her on her work. And, and she also was probably one of the people cheering loudest for everyone when they were named, you know, even the short directors. And like, she just did not stop applauding. And it all felt very genuine, but she definitely um, has become a presence in those rooms. And, and after Will's sort of beautiful speech about her at the SAGs, I do think mm-hmm. I agree that there is a momentum there that's really interesting. And she's worked with a lot of people in that industry. You yeah. know, she's yeah. been around a long time. She's been in TV. She's been in films. Um, that can help sometimes, I think, you know, whereas Ariana DeBose, respected, you know, theater person, people obviously love her performance in West Side Story, is more of an unknown. And I, I don't know how that'll shake out, but I think that's definitely in, in Ellis's favor. Yeah. And we should also mention that King Richard just won a huge editing award in a big mm-hmm. upset over Belfast and Dune and Power of the Dog. And that... I think through a lot of people for a loop because it's not the movie that you would necessarily expect to to win a craft race among a guild like that. So that shows to me that there is more love for the movie than perhaps we thought beyond Will Smith's Best Actor candidacy. Um, but it feels like more broadly, Power of the Dog has always occupied this one more art house lane in the race. And, and I think we've been trying to figure out the feel-good challenger in Belfast had occupied that default position for a long time. And that's looking increasingly unlikely. It hasn't really won anything. It doesn't seem like it's really popping at these events the way you would need a movie like that to. Um, and in a way, evidently, King Richard and Coda are. I'm likening, I'm likening Coda to Little Miss Sunshine this year. Little Miss Sunshine won SAG. It debuted at Sundance and was a huge sensation. Uh, and Little Miss Sunshine actually also won PGA. Um, before huh. it lost, before it lost to The Departed, but that was in a pre-preferential ballot era, yeah. and you have to wonder how a feel-good movie that the industry has clearly, you know, really loves um, can fare on that kind of 
voting system, which hasn't fully been tested uh, for a movie like that before. So, well, um, isn't it Green Book is the example? I, I think, you know, no one wants to be compared to Green Book, I think, especially in film Twitter. But like Roma versus Green Book was the showdown, like the challenging, huge Netflix movie from a respected auteur who wins Best Director and then gets uh, unseated by a more feel good movie. It's, right. My one thing about Green Book is, is it, it did have in the industry, it was considered with a bit more weight. It was nominated for editing. I think it had six nominations overall, mm, mm-hmm. which which is a bit more what we would expect of a preferential ballot winner. It's what we've seen when the movie that dominates in the nominations that we think has a leg up doesn't win. It tends to lose to a movie that's still pretty well represented. Coda only has three nominations, um, which is more in that Little Miss Sunshine vein of a movie that is completely driven by love for the actors and the screenplay. And I don't think we've seen a movie triumph for just that yet. Um, So this is an interesting test of whether that is enough because we haven't really seen that yet. Yeah. You're kind of persuading me that Coda has more of a chance, like since we started recording. (laughs) I was kind of discounting. (laughs) Same. I feel like we're all like, (laughs) Or are we just trying to create narratives with, you know, a week to go before voting starts? That's the eternal question, right? Well, Deadline also reported that Jane Campion has been quarantining due to a COVID test. She's apparently fine. Um, But she's not out uh, campaigning as much. And so we haven't quite seen her in a room yet. I'm, I'm going to the AFI Awards on Friday. Um, and this weekend, Rebecca and I will be hitting a bunch of events between the DGAs and um, the DGAs. Critics' Choice. And P- yes, there's a lot happening. And so I think if she is able to emerge and win a DGA, particularly on, on Saturday... That that momentum might get back into the power dog's favor. Oscar voting hasn't even started yet. Yeah. And it's hard to bet against the movie that so not only got so many nominations, you know, Mank got a lot of nominations last year, but none of them were particularly surprising. Power of the Dog got a lot that were surprising and that showed that there was a lot of love in the acting branch so much that they would nominate Jesse Plemons or production design, which seemed like a huge long shot that they would recognize it among those five. That's why I would still bet on it, but Clearly, a new challenger has emerged. Is there any parallel between this year and 2005 where the gay cowboy movie won Best Director but didn't win Best Picture and the kind of more broadly, I mean, not broadly appealing, but sort of, I don't know, more sturdily sort of issues movie yeah. Uh, one best picture. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think, you know, we we can roll our eyes at Sam Elliott and Cody Smith-McPhee and Cumberbatch both had very good differing responses to that. Um, but there are probably enough older or non-older, who knows, members of the Academy who feels vaguely the same way he does, you know, about about some things that he doesn't like about that movie and who it's about and how it's about that. So I don't know. I'm just wondering if maybe there's a little bit of history to look at in terms of that year where Campion could win director, but maybe that film is too polarizing for dumb reasons um, to, mm. to win Best Picture. Yeah, I think that's totally possible. I also think like, like Power of the Dog is polarizing for reasons beyond that, you know? Like, it is a complicated, not easy to wrap your head around movie, especially on first viewing. And so those two things in, in tandem could also work against it. Although I think we thought that was going to happen ever since we all saw it back in September, and then it's had this huge run. So clearly enough people are embracing it just fine. Yeah, it's um, it, it's not a race like we've seen before. I, I remember when I saw Power of the Dog, and I love the film. I've seen it many times since. I, I wasn't sure how far it would go in the Best Picture race. Um, and I was really only convinced of it being a true frontrunner after the nominations. Mm-hmm. It's not one that I think popped to any of us as the movie that would run away with it. 
Um, but the academy is changing and the industry is changing. And uh, this feels like another moment for them to prove just how much they have been changing. Um, and I guess we'll see whether they take that leap or not. Jane Campion not winning the DGA would be insane. Like that. I, I don't think that. Yeah, I think that would be I think, insane. I, I do believe that is the moment that it's phase two campaign really kicks into gear. I would be shocked if she doesn't win that. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the other last thing that's been happening uh, on the ground in L.A., although uh, not in person because the uh, Santa Barbara Film Festival's COVID policies were a little different from what others are. So, um, David and Rebecca, you guys kind of took it in from a distance a bit. Um, but there were people in person, maybe not as many as we thought there would be. Um, but, David, you noticed one person in particular uh, really popping there and elsewhere. Kristen Stewart, she's everywhere. <laughs> and we haven't talked about we haven't we haven't given our weekly straw poll of best actress where we pick a different <laughs> we pick a different nominee every single week because it's impossible to predict. <laughs> um, yes, Kristen Stewart was presented uh, an award there by Charlize Theron. Um, I saw some of her speech. It seemed like she really did work the room beautifully. She was at the Spirits as the honorary chair of the Film Independent Spirit Awards. Sure, uh, where she where she presented um, best actor and also was the designated um, Ukraine spokesperson, which I thought was interesting. She gave a, a lovely kind of nod to the people fighting in that war and, and supporting them. And then she also was working that room uh, before the show started. Uh, I saw her talking to a ton of people and everyone just seems delighted to meet her. And she seems to be genuinely enjoying herself. It doesn't, the work is not showing, even though it is work. <laughs> Yeah, it was the same at this, the um, luncheon. You know, I, I happened to be nearby when she arrived. And it was like, I don't know who these people are, but she must have had to stop for five or six selfies in a row, you know, from, from people in the room and made it like two feet. Um, and she's she seems so uh, relaxed about it. And, and she's really, I don't know, seems to be working these rooms without it at least looking like it's terrible for her. And she is one of those people, I think, that, you know, can't really go anywhere without being, um, I guess, bothered by people who want time with her or selfies and stuff. And and I know she went to another awards event last night and, you know, she's changing outfits and looks for all these things. And it's, it's really impressive how much she's doing. And I do think that that can't hurt in a race that is so up in the air. Yeah. Does she have a path? It's I think a, they uh, all have a path. <laughs> I, think, I think they all have a path. It doesn't always happen with SAG. I don't know if you've picked up on this, Rebecca, but it feels like there is an assumption that Jessica Chastain is is a pretty mm. strong mm-hmm. front runner right now. It does yeah. seem like out of SAG, um, people have latched on to that as this, the expected outcome. But that probably does help someone like Kristen Stewart or maybe Penelope Cruz, who are you know repping more art house contenders that are occupying a different lane. I think it's difficult for them to, you know, as long as Kristen Stewart was a front runner, it would be very hard for Penelope Cruz, I think, to beat her. But they're both in an interesting lane. Yeah. But I still don't know. (laughs) I I mean, yeah, it's Chastain definitely had one of the loudest applause at the luncheon. Not that that is a scientific poll in any way. No, that's interesting, though. But she, I mean, it speaks to what we said before, that she's so respected by so much of the industry and... And I I think if I had to pick today, I'd go with her as well. Me too. <laughs> well, and at the BAFTAs on Sunday, um, no, none of the Best Actress nominees are nominated, which, David, you had to point back out to me, and I just could not believe all it's over just, again. It's, it's staggering. I mean, <laughs> it, it just proves how deep that category ran and, and how many different directions, I think, 
that list of five with the Oscars could have gone. I mean, it's possible Amelia Jones was number six. We really don't know because BAFTA has a, their own top two that automatically makes it to the nominations. And it's always assumed that those would cross over at least to Oscar noms. So it was so spread out that none of them did. And you, I just wonder who was even at the top of that list for BAFTA. It's hard to say. Yeah. So Critics' Choice will be the one to watch this week to see who wins Best Actress. And maybe that person will become the new frontrunner. Uh, I think Kristen Stewart's going to win that. I really do. What a journey. This is fun. We just have to all accept that we'll be wrong in our predictions and embrace the chaos. Who do you guys pick, Richard and Katie? (sighs) I don't go go first, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I still keep getting swayed by the Nicole Kidman idea, even though that seems so dead in the water after SAG. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll stick with that today, and then next week I'll change my mind. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Be wrong, Richard. Don't be afraid to be wrong. It's, I mean, uh, what if it's Olivia Coleman? This category is why this podcast exists. It really <laughs> Yeah. You know, I'm actually going to ask ABC to cut me out of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be edited in only the best part. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I guess I have to stick to my guns and say Kidman still. But I, I think, you know, clearly the wins were maybe, were maybe never even there. It's not that they've changed. Um, so Chastain is number two for me, I suppose, just based yeah. on last week. You know, speaking of Chastain and going back to the categories thing, I'm trying to find the person who tweeted this and I can't. But someone was suggesting that the, um, you know, the top acting contenders should say that if they win, that they will bring a below the line person who didn't get to be on the broadcast up on stage with them. Um, Mm. And I have no idea if that would ever happen. But doesn't Jessica Chastain feel like the one who would of anybody? Oh, yeah. Kind of? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, imagine Tammy Faye wins makeup off the air and then Jessica Chastain wins and she brings the makeup artist up with her. um... Oh, that's highly plausible, actually. Yeah, right? Now that you say it, I mean, yeah. (laughs) I know. I mean, yeah, I don't know if it, like, if they don't win, I don't know if she brings, like, you know, Johnny Greenwood up with her, although I would absolutely watch that. Kristen Stewart bringing Johnny Greenwood up would be wild. so good. Um, And then irony of ironies, they try to play them off with the song from once. (laughs) (laughs) No, they play the Power of the Dog score to play them off and everyone just like shifts uncomfortably in their seats because it's so unsettling. (laughs) John Stewart brings Marquetta Irglova out to give a speech for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) They let John Stewart backstage. No one knows why. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so now Richard and I are here with our friend, returning guest, uh, This Had Oscar Buzz co-host, Oscar guru, Joe Reed. Hi, Joe. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
Um, if you are you're early this year. If, yes. if Groundhog comes around on Groundhog Day, you <laughs> usually come around post Oscars uh, to talk about um, the year ahead, which you'll still do. Um, but we brought you in this year to talk about the Oscar shorts because um, truly, when it, when it comes to anything with the Oscars, that requires just like a ton of research and collating information. I turn to you. So. Yeah. Well, and more so this year, I feel like this year's crop in general was longer in just in terms of like minutes spent Mm -hmm. than any that I can recall. Yeah. Richard, how do you do on your time management of Oscar shorts? I feel like this is an annual struggle for us all. Well, I kind of saved it for too late and I was like, it'll be fine. And then you look and it's 38 minutes, 39 (laughs) minutes and you're like, oh, dear God. The one that got me was because normally... I'm like, well, at least the animated ones will be nice and brief. And then the one I was just like 30 minutes for an animated <laughs> short. That's not how it usually goes. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, so these have been uh, rentable on VOD and in theaters for a couple of weeks now. So hopefully people have had a chance to catch up with them. Um, and we're going to go through them and do our annual thing of trying to predict who's going to win based on having watched them, which, uh, spoiler alert, doesn't always work. So we'll see if any of our research pans out. Let's start with the documentary shorts, um, both because it's where I started. And as far as I can tell, it's the category with the biggest push behind it. Netflix sent me a sweatshirt for the film Audible, um, which I think really tells you which one they're pushing hard for. And I think and I think for good reason. It's kind of one of two heartwarming sports dramas in there. Yeah. Um, that they one have think- three, though, right? They have three total of the doc shorts, I believe, right? Yes. They have Audible, three songs for Benazir, which is about... Um, uh, a man living in an Afghan refugee camp and then Lead Me Home, which is yes. about uh, homelessness in uh, various West Coast cities. Um, I feel like I see why Audible is the one that they would push out of those. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Yeah. It's the one where I watched it and I'm like, the thing with documentary shorts is you are always sort of playing this balancing act between am I judging this film as a film or am I just sort of reacting to the subject matter? The documentary shorts are sort of Notorious is the wrong word, but like well known for being about various, very heavy, very, you know, serious and important subject matters and and Mm -hmm. sort of rightly so. And it's not that Audible isn't that. It's about uh, high schoolers at a Maryland school for the deaf who most of them, most of the characters we follow uh, play football. One of them is a cheerleader. And so there are like serious subjects. There's, you know, it deals with the aftermath of a suicide of a teen and there's heaviness to it, but there's also something life affirming, you know, all the terms Mm -hmm. that I'm coming up with sound very sort of corny, right? Where it's just like, you know, heartwarming and whatever. And it's just like, I don't want to reduce it with that. I did really like this movie quite a bit. It's the one where I sort of walked away feeling like this might not be the, most sort of like rigorously like documentarian of all of them but it's the one I most want to like hand a statue to and Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to voters that matters a lot it also made me think of and Richard especially I want to know what you sort of think about this this feels like the long tail legacy of like shows like Laguna Beach coming around where it's just like oh now high schoolers (laughs) just sort of like live in you know, live out loud, live in public, live as if they are on television shows anyway. And so that while this like very artificial setup of a movie sort of happening, chronicling their lives, that they're at a party and they're sort of, you know, recording conversations that 
unfold as if they are conversations happening in a teen drama. And I'm like, oh, this is sort of what now has become of like teen life is just sort of living as if you are on camera anyway. So I don't know. What did you think about that, Richard? Yeah, I mean, it's very slick looking, you know, um, in a in a yeah Laguna Beach Hills esque way, I suppose. You know, you see these scenes of the football, which, you know, also brings to mind Friday Night Lights, the television series so. or the movie yes. even, which had that very arty golden hour sort of photography. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I like that there is um, some real craft behind this. It's not just an interesting story, which you're right, right Joe, in pointing out that is often the tension of watching documentaries. You know, um, I think this is there is filmmaking here. Um and, you know, aside from one major scandal, I still think that Netflix's cheer has a lot of people invested in it. And this is mm. filmed in a similar way. It is, yeah. you know, treating these people as characters. That's a familiar thing, you know, I, I, for very good reason and, and much too late, like, uh, or much overdue, rather, you know, there has been more inclusion of the deaf community in award shows in movies and television yeah. and i think this is a nice continuation of that to sort of complement coda um yeah. which is why i think it's the front runner i would agree with that it also reminds me of minding the gap in a way that i that i liked oh, uh, yeah. and i really rooted for that movie that year uh among the documentaries that was such a good movie yeah. my one counterpoint to it being the front runner because i agree with everything you guys are saying um so lead me home uh the one that's also on netflix and it's very flashy kind of Almost the stylistic opposite of Audible, where it's like huge drone shots and, you know, yeah. sped up shots of cars on the freeways. Um, if the metric is what is the movie that Los Angeles-based voters are going to care the most about, this one about homelessness on the West Coast and kind of interviewing the people who are living um, on the streets and, you know, I think using photography over and over again to be like, here are the people who have everything, living elbow to elbow with people who have nothing I don't love the way this movie is made. I think it's like taking on too much and too short of a format to really get anywhere. It takes on anywhere. a lot, yes. Yeah. The fact that it tries to do two or three cities within the span of, uh, you know, even a long short film is... Uh, yeah. yeah, and introduce like five or six characters of people who you're like rooting for to, you know, get into a home. Yeah. Um, but I think if you're if you're in L.A. and you're watching that and you're, you know, driven past people on the highway living in a tent, you're going to be like, yes, okay, this is the important one. I'm, I'm thinking of the year that there was a movie by a Los Angeles private high school that won the Doc Short Oscar. And I that was my my logic there, even though I don't think it's as good as Audible. That does make a lot of sense. Even in the even in the sense that there's a shot in uh in Lead Me Home where all of a sudden it sort of like pans down to a sign uh, for Echo Park in a way that is like a villain reveal in <laughs> in a film. And it's very clearly sort of like this is now where we are implicating you, the viewer, Los Angeles uh, yeah. Oscar voter, essentially. Like this is in your backyard. This is a problem of largely your own making or at least your own perpetuation. And I guess you you'll sort of see the willingness of Los Angeles based Oscar voters to sort of assume that assume that mantle feel better by feeling worse. You know what I mean? One yeah. of those things. Yep. And yep. yeah, I, it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Um, Richard, were there any other of these shorts that you especially liked? Um, I thought the Queen of Basketball was nice because it's about uh, Lucia Harris, who was the first uh, 
scored the first basket at the first women's match at the Olympics in, in Montreal in the 70s. Yeah, so she was on the first U.S. women's team during the first Olympics when um, the women's basketball was part of the event. Um, and she had a, a really illustrious college career, multiple uh, national championships, uh, was offered to go try out for an NBA team and said no due to some personal uh, things, mental health, one of them, and died recently. And so it's really nice to spend time with her. She's got a very spirited, interesting way of looking back at her um, incredible basketball career. Uh, She was a coach later in life that, you know, not enough people know about. She's the first woman inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And look, I don't really care about basketball, but this short made me care at least about her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that one thing about it, you know, there's really nice archival footage and, and all that stuff. It's well put together. But part of this almost seemed like a sizzle reel for a biopic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there is filmmaking there, but like she's such an interesting character. It would be such a great role for someone and you can you can bring mm-hmm. in so much mental health, racism, sexism, the seventies, basketball. You know, like it would maybe it would be good companion piece to the show Winning Time that's on uh, HBO right now, uh, right, right, or Winning yeah. Season or whatever it's called. But I, yeah, so I don't think it'll win. But um, I thought it was. I'm glad that I watched it because I genuinely really did learn something yeah. um, about a really interesting person. I, I would say that of the five, there was one I really didn't like. Which was when we were bullies. I mm-hmm. I kind of I was like Richard's not going to like this movie. At I, the I, end of that, the filmmaker it's it's about this guy who grew up in Brooklyn rem- remembering an incident in fifth grade where he and a bunch of other students bullied uh, and kind of beat up um, a, a sort of marginalized classmate. Um, and then you know fifty years years later, they're kind of he's reconnecting with the people who were there, minus the the actual victim, uh, sort of, um, and. At the end of the film, he's like, and I got to wondering if maybe doing all this was kind of reach, you know, just reenacting <laughs> the thing. And it's like, you think? Shouldn't you have come to that conclusion when the initial email went out to the guy and he never wrote back to you? You know, like, yeah. Uh, so I just thought that I thought the tone of it was trying to make something that didn't happen to this filmmaker. And I guess it's good that people who perpetrate violence actually think about that, too. But I just thought the tone on this was weird and there are many, many points throughout where he probably could have reconsidered doing the whole thing, at least framing it the way he did. My feeling on that movie was, I think you, you, you know, you mentioned it uh, briefly, but the, there is, there is a value and there is something somewhat interesting in the perpetrators of like youthful, like childhood uh, violence in this way, reflecting on that and 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 grappling with that i think my problem with when we were bullies is it takes so much time up like so much of its time is taken up with the hand wringing of the filmmaker of should i be making this movie and it's like either make the movie or don't make the movie (laughs) but like don't spend 90 percent of the running time of this short film being like, I don't know if I should be making this movie. And it's just like, then, as you said, Richard, like, then don't. If you if you really feel like that way, then don't. Or, or else, just do it. Just jump in and make this movie and really, like, investigate and interrogate, you know, your own behavior in this. And so much of it felt like I was waiting for the movie to begin and then it's over. Yeah. The, the, he interviews his teacher at the end of it. She's like, I don't know if anyone's going to want to watch this movie. And you're like, oh, wow. Okay, you put that in the movie, so clearly you disagree. But, like, was she right? Well, that felt very like Lady Gaga's grandmother in Joanne, too, where it's just like, <laughs> you know, it was a long time ago, honey. What like, 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 that kind of a thing. 
Um, that one's been picked up by um, HBO, HBO um, and it'll be on HBO Max on March 30th, I believe. So um, it, people can't watch it yet, but we'll be able to watch it soon after the Oscars. Um, but we all agree that we think uh, Audible is the odds-on favorite here. I do. I think, yeah, I think it has all of the component parts um, plus, you know, whatever campaign backing Netflix, you know, is giving it. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on to animation, which in a fun twist this year, uh, when we were setting leaks, came with the note, for mature audiences only, which is <laughs> not usually what you see with animation. Um, and Dan Coyce at Slate uh, wrote it up really nicely about, you know, he usually takes his kids to these. And most of these, I think, would be fine taking kids to, although there's nudity in, like, at least three a, of a them, few maybe? of them, yeah, yeah. like it, more than more than just one, yeah, yeah. Uh, but only one of them has incredibly graphic violence and bestiality. Um, so maybe we'll start with Bestia, for which I wrote in my notes, like what the fuck, because it really uh, it jumps dark really fast. Um, and uh, Richard, I think you were puzzled by this one when you were watching it as well. Yeah, it's it's you know I I, I texted you and and um and Joe and and you told me that it was it's based on a real person um Ingrid Olderock who was a particularly nasty um secret police officer during Pinochet's reign of terror in Chile and in particular she uh trained other women to torture other women and uh use dogs um to uh menace them and worse and um so the film which is very abstract impressionistic stop motion dog decapitation and other various yeah. things it is about something real and I, I i wonder if academy voters will do that like extra research or whatever but once i did and actually read about the real person i kind of thought differently about the film which is really striking mm. and, and creepy because i thought we were supposed to be kind of watching the hero of the movie right and it's really not that at all right um mm. so i i liked the big swing because it really is not for kids whatsoever no but i think it'll prove alienating for the academy it's definitely, of all of the animated shorts, this was not my favorite year for animated short. Normally, like last year, I feel like two of my favorite movies in, on the entire Oscar ballot were uh, from the animated shorts. I really loved, uh, was it Opera? The one with the big... Uh, yeah. Oh, The Tower great. of People. Oh, yeah, that was Amazing. Crazy. And then I loved, on the total opposite spectrum, I loved that movie Burrow so much. The oh, Pixar yeah. short that was about the... The, the uh, rabbit that just wants him to have a home. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, I almost wanted to go and watch Burrow after watching these because it was like, it's a heavy group of five in terms of animated short. Bestia is definitely the most striking in terms of the animation. Uh, as Richard said, it's stop motion. And the, the main character has this sort of porcelain painted porcelain kind of look to her that is incredibly striking and just on an animation level that was the one that interested me the most i was kind of looking forward to the ardman uh, one 30 minute long uh ardman uh, animated short called robin robin that is a netflix movie and i found myself kind of let down by that one it felt like it felt like it was straining for whimsy and not really giving me something genuinely whimsical or lovely. It does have uh, celebrity voices in it. Richard E. Grant voices a magpie and Gillian Anderson voices a cat. That's good casting, man. It's really good casting. At one point, they break into a musical number that is 
exactly like a carbon copy of a Simpsons musical number that in itself was a carbon copy of Be Our Guest. So I was just like, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what the like nesting doll of homage that's happening in this movie is. But uh, that would have been the one going in. I was like, oh, well, like this, is, it's Aardman. So like the Oscars love, uh, love Aardman. And I, I was not super into that one. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I thought that the, I mean, the animation, the stop motion animation is incredible. Yeah. But and maybe that's really what people should be basing sure. the bulk of this award on. But like, it felt yeah, it felt so forced. The weird, you know, see my vest thing. Thank you. Was Thank annoying. you. Was that was that, like I wasn't. I'm not the only one who thought of that. Oh no, it's it. fully that slash um, uh, part of their world. From yes. Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Gadgets and gizmos are plenty. Right. Um, you know the voice acting is cute, but it all just felt weirdly muted, and and ultimately in service of a message that was very well trod in children's films, which is like you might feel like an oddball, but you're still part of the family, and you know you can right. you have your own unique gifts, and I guess it's good that kids have that reiterated to them over yeah. the generations. But sure. uh, yeah, I just didn't feel mo- moved by it in the slightest. So what's the good one in here? Like, you know, looking back at it, I don't have a ton to say about Windshield Wiper or Box Ballet, which, you know, romances in varying ways. Um, Affairs of the Art is very interesting. I don't I feel like I need to watch it again to understand it because it's so strange. But maybe it's like the most the one I would most endorse to other people because it's so striking. Affairs of the Art is very verbal, too. And in that's in that way, it is unlike most animated short nominees throughout the years, especially I feel like since I've started watching them, cause I'll watch all of the Oscar nominated movies, uh, animated short really tends to favor nonverbal, ab- more abstract kind of, you know, score heavy and not really a ton of language in it. And affairs of the art is a very chatty movie for better or for worse. Um, and I appreciated that part of it i thought it was fine i wasn't really kind of over the moon about it i similar to box ballet which is like an interesting idea of like a boxer and a ballet dancer and sort of it you know weaves in between their two kind of disciplines and that was interesting and then the windshield wiper reminded me in a way where like i would rather be watching the movie it reminds me of it reminded me of richard linkletter's waking life in mm-hmm. this, the rotoscoping or whatever the rotoscoping and also this sort of like we're going to kind of meditate on a theme and spin it out into these various sort of little vignettes right and and in waking life it's this idea of consciousness and self and you know all these like very like sophomore in college kind of uh, just learning about philosophy stuff which appeals to me because that they really just like Linkletter really goes in on it and it's just like without concern for seeming like an unbearable college student. And in that way, I was just like, well, I appreciate this. Uh, (laughs) And windshield wiper feels a little more scattered than that. It's on the idea of like love, which is like, okay. Like, you know, it's, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm not anti love, but it's like everything's, (laughs) everything's love. You know what I mean? If you really think about it. So it's like, okay. I thought it was, I thought it was okay. The fact that you get, you do get a lot of, uh, sort of nudity and and sex in that one it reminded me not specifically of the nudity but like the actual the sort of explicitness of the shorts this year reminded me of there was the year that uh world of tomorrow and sanjay super team and uh, were all nominated there was a short called prologue that was 
this incredibly like violent and also like featured nudity uh kind of like a greek battle animation and i remember that was the first time i watched it and was just like oh right like the kids who come to see like with their parents to see like <laughs> sanjay's super team are also going to watch like somebody getting like split open from like stem to stern and whatever <laughs> on the field of greek battle i was like oh okay so like animation is not a genre animation is a medium <laughs> and yeah uh, it encompasses many genres and types so here we are yeah so yeah, I think that in terms of paring it down, I mean, I, I came home from a, a, a like a long day of travel to watch these, and they all, in varying ways, annoyed me. <laughs> like yeah. maybe I was just on a short. Fuse. <laughs> no, they were. Not, this was not my favorite group of animated shorts. No, by by Affairs of the Art is is grading in a way I can't quite articulate. Uh-huh. Best just probably too confusing. Robin Robin is boring, and people will probably in long, and I think that'll alienate people, even though there are celebrity voices in it. Windshield Wiper is probably too small and abstract, so I think that leaves Box Ballet, which is a you know, Russian boxer or Ukrainian. I'm not sure. I think it's um, Russian. Uh, and a ballet dancer and a boxer meet, fall in love, things ensue, you know, and then it ends. And I think it's accessible. The animation is 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 nice, yeah. um, if simple. And uh, so I don't know. I just feel like by default, that's the one I think is going to win. Not to be like weird and trolly about it, but like, is the Russian movie going to win in this world that well, we're in right now? The, 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 I don't think these Russian artists. No, I don't want to. I don't want to punish know? these. No, but we are in a moment of like this odd kind of surface level. Like we're going to call it the Uptown Tea Room. They're not really doing that, but like you know what I mean. Like we're going to remove yeah. the term Russian from you know salad dressing and whatnot to show our our support in in this very kind of shallow and surfacey way um when does voting happen <laughs> i don't know i don't know you know that's that's an odd consideration but yeah i don't know if the country of origin is listed on the oscar ballot i'd be interested to know if that is true as well um but it's it, it's hard to know like if it's if none of them are really standing out and that's the one thing that tips someone over to voting for bestia maybe it'll happen I could also see people voting for Robin Robin because it is an animated style they historically like. And yeah, I imagine Netflix is probably going to, you know, push that one as well. Although I haven't noticed any, you know, bird swag around anywhere. But I'm, you know, very well could be coming. Well, I have a life-size felt Robin sitting uh, right there. There you go. Right <laughs> um, yeah, I think I would probably pick Robin Robin as a winner just as like the, the simplest one for anyone who watches these. Yeah. Richard, what's your pick? I th- I think box ballet because I think Robin Robin's too long. Okay, all right. On to live action. There is a movie. There's one of these with a movie star in it. So maybe we should start with the long goodbye, which is uh, Riz Ahmed, who is nominated um, as a a director on it. I don't know. If, I don't know what his title on it is exactly, but he is a a key creative collaborator on it. It's pretty striking. It might be the shortest of them. It's about twelve minutes long. It is. I think um, the shortest, and has yeah. what I think is a really useful thing in a short, which is a very clear, quick concept um, that it gets across in and out. I think Please Hold does a similar thing. Yep. And I thought it was pretty good. I think Riz Ahmed probably has a good chance in here. It's the one that reminded me the most of last year's winner, Two Distant Strangers. Um, yes. and, in a way that. Um, uh, Please hold also does a little bit. Please hold is kind of the the more in the uh, in the vein of like the Black Mirrorness of yeah. of Two Distant Strangers that sort of goes more in that direction, and uh, the Riz Ahmed film is more heavily towards the sort of like kind of like blunt and traumatic uh, end of that spectrum. I remember that Two Distant Strangers got a decent bit of pushback from. 
uh, from critics and from uh, even uh, audiences who who watched it about its leaning on the trauma aspect of what was happening in that film for you know laurels but also just sort of like for import for for impact yeah and chris murphy um, when we did this last year chris murphy our colleague was talking about that film if anyone wants to go back and listen to it and and i feel like there's an element of that to the long goodbye it ends with this very sort of like confrontational wrapped monologue uh, from Riz Ahmed that for, this is this whole film is a kind of filmed music video for his concept album for Riz mm-hmm. Ahmed's concept album which is not a thing I realized when it got nominated so there's also the fact of this like incredibly kind of like frenetic and chaotic and tra- and tragic and traumatic thing that we're seeing is in service of promoting an album which felt <laughs> kind of odd to me and in a way that like I certainly do not mean to minimize the you know the thing that is being dramatized in this movie which is of course horrifying and and you know anti-immigrant violence is a real thing and but like I don't know there was there was a degree of of unease with me as I was watching that movie and in not in a way that I think the film intends hmm. yeah I mean I I think it's strong filmmaking I think if we want to get really in the weeds, it, re- it reminded me of, is it the MIA video with the redheaded people being hunted down? Oh, I it's, don't know that one. There, there was a music video, a sort of dystopian. I mean, not that like what's depicted in, in the, the long goodbye is far from reality. I mean, it kind of is reality, but like, I don't know. I th- there's something about that movie that it felt a little bit, despite how horrifying it is, like kind of familiar and please hold, which is kind of this black mirror esque, uh, satire of uh, for-profit prisons and various other uh, incarceral issues. You know, it feels derivative of Black Mirror, sure, but like I think there's some new, Id- I mean, some quirky ideas in terms of being arrested by drone and not, yeah. you know, not meeting people in prison and 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 being kind of lost in this automated thing. Although some of the sort of jokes about you know, getting the robot when you call customer service, like those feel a little bit old. There's a little, Um, there's a, there's a, there's a degree of hackiness to some of it, but yeah, I think in general, the idea that he never finds out what he's been charged with ever, even at the end of the thing, we never know exactly the mechanism of why he ends up getting let out by the end. And it's also stars, uh, the star, the only uh, human actor in it, who's not on a, a video screen, actually. Uh, whatever, the main guy uh, is Eric Lopez, who I only know from being on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He was Hector on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and I loved Hector. So uh, this maybe has a good. little bit of, uh, a little bit of a sentimental uh, pull to me because I was just like, oh, I love that guy. So uh, <laughs> I kind of hope he wins. But uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one. Again, I never loved the live action shorts. I always, I don't know what it is about me with the live action shorts, but there's always a degree of like, internal hostility from my, from me that I have to like overcome when I watch these and I don't know what it is it's pro- it's my problem and that not theirs probably but yeah here we are but I liked please hold um I like please hold a lot too the one the other one that really stood out to me that I thought was going to be kind of a drag was Alakachu um from yes. Kyrgyzstan I like um, that which so it starts off as this kind of charming story about like a girl escaping her like restricted family in the countryside and she moves to the big city and 
you know, her friend's teaching her how to drive and it's charming. And then it very quickly turns dramatic where she gets kidnapped and uh, to be a bride, uh, which is apparently something that is uh, terrifyingly common there. Um, but it's made really well. It's acted really well by people who I assume are not, you know, especially experienced actors. Um, and I was really captivated by it, um, even yeah. though it, it, it does what I think a lot of these shorts do, which is like, here's an important issue and we are going to make a movie about it and get you to think about it. Um, but it kind of transcends that um, that mandate. I think in this case, though, I've never seen a movie from Kyrgyzstan, I don't think. No. Um, I didn't know about The Bride Kidnapping, which is the, the title of the film in uh, Kyrgyz. Um, and Alina Turdu Mamatova, who plays the lead, is so good. So, so good. Um, yeah. And uh, as a, you know, I'm sure that this could be expanded into a feature. I mean, most live action shorts are made as, as proof of concept, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Very few are meant to exist on their own. But I, I saw that too overbearingly in um, Police Hold. And this one, it felt more like a contained story that wasn't just playing as that proof of concept. And I appreciated that, um, along with the good acting and the um, coming from a place that I've you know n- not seen films really about. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That would be my vote. But I don't know that the Academy would listen to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I like that one a lot. And I do feel like... I mean, I think the Riz Ahmed movie is going to win because of the his star power in that. Uh, but if Taken Run did end up getting getting the win, I would really enjoy it. I think, I like, as you said, like the angle of it, it's not from the sounds of it. It sounds like it's going to be this like horrifyingly again traumatic thing where she gets kidnapped and whatever. And it's like because of the angle of like the kidnapping happens with the sort of blessing of her family that this Mm -hmm. is sort of how these arranged marriage is going to work and there's an angle of conversion therapy which is like there's an an, an analogy to that a little bit and the movie is not meant as an analogy but like there are there are aspects to it that it's just like you are trying to sort of force the younger generation to mold to these kind of you know outdated ways and it's really interesting and yeah the lead actress performance is really good and I liked I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Would that get um your vote, Joe? I think I'm probably gonna vote for uh for please hold, but like it's close between those two. Yeah, I would probably say the same thing. I think I liked the long goodbye more than you guys did. Um but Alakachu and Please Hold be my top picks. I I don't want to diss the dress and on my mind, which are made by I'm sure very um talented and striving filmmakers. They were not my favorites in especially among those three stronger ones, I think. Yeah, I agree with you there. Well, now that we've talked about all of these films, uh, how do we feel about uh, them getting their Oscars off the air? (laughs) Because the shorts are among the categories. I know. Now that we've given you all some interesting angles to watch, now you can uh, watch as they get sent to commercial with Buffer. Find out who won in a tweet from the Academy. So annoying. I don't know. I feel like I've, I've cried all my tears about this. I don't know. It's just so, it's really frustrating that you're essentially like arguing against a brick wall of ABC being like, nobody cares. And you're just like, but art. And they're like, nobody cares. And mm. I don't know. It's very frustrating. Riz Ahmed winning an Oscar off the air it would be yeah. a real uh, vivid indication of how they messed up here. I'm hoping that there's some kind of, and whatever, like, it's probably a lot to ask of like this, the the Ukraine Oscars, which I feel like this is probably going to be. I feel like there's going to be a lot of, political statement about that and uh with you know good reason i'm hoping for a stunt of some kind essentially just like somebody like using their time 
at the podium to bring up maybe, you know, nominees or, or winners who, who weren't given their moment or something. Something to just sort of like stick your thumb in the eye of of ABC and the Academy for doing this because it is it's anti-art. I don't I, I sound stupid for saying that because I sound like, you know, like, you know, high minded and whatnot. But like it is that's what it comes down to. And it's dumb. Joe, you don't know this, but we talked about this in the main part of the episode and <laughs> speculating Jessica Chastain is the person who would be most likely to yes! win a telecast Oscar. Do it, Jessica. Do it. Yes. <laughs> um, well, Joe, thank you for joining us for this. Um, I hope everyone watches these shorts because they really are worth it. Even we you know, foolishly complain about running time. Um, I think everyone should check all of these out and be prepared for your own Oscar ballot. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. So, Rebecca, now let's listen to the conversation you had with Kieran Hines, who got his first Oscar nomination for Belfast. Um, I was kind of stunned to realize it was his first, even though I don't know what I thought he'd been nominated for. But he's been working for so long and he's so great. Uh, So tell me what you talked about. Well, he was a wonderful interview. He grew up very close to where uh, Kenneth Branagh grew up. But, you know, he was a little bit older. So he was he said around 15 or 16 when the troubles, you know, came to his hometown. But it was really interesting to hear sort of his emotional connection to the work and, you know, how he thought of his own parents when he um, was getting ready to play this role of of the grandfather in Belfast. So um, he was just a, a joy to talk to. Let's listen to that conversation. Kieran Hines, thank you for joining me to talk a little bit more about Belfast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So I'd love to hear how you found out about your Oscar nomination. What was it like that day? Um, it was a strange day. I had, uh, not that I'd ignored uh, the Oscar nominations, it had gone out of my mind entirely because uh, I was kind of traveling between London and Paris, uh, between family, a daughter in London and my wife in Paris. And I was at um, King's Cross, St. Pancras, which is the main station in London. And I was going through security and uh, passport control, and my phone started pinging, but it was on the machine going uh, through security. And by the time I got through to the other end, there was about eight or ten pings had already gone, and I didn't understand what was happening. And then I went on to passport control, and there was another ten pings. So by the time I got through all that, there was about 25 pings on my phone and I didn't understand because I don't live, a, I live a quite a quiet life really. And uh, I, I thought this is either bad news or something's happened. I don't know. So I opened it up and it was just full of congratulations from people from all over the place who I don't know what time they were up at or where they were in the world. But it was very, uh, it's a very joyous thing, sometimes a bit scary to open up. What are all these messages about? But this was uh, very celebratory. So it was, uh, it was kind of a surprise as well. I mean, the idea of being nominated was a surprise, first of all, but then how it arrived was even a greater surprise. Yeah. And and Belfast did really, really well. Judy Dench obviously got nominated. Uh, Kenneth got a lot of love as well. What did it feel like to, to see all those nominations once you really took it in? It was a very special moment. I was, I was really thrilled for Ken 
I mean, because this was his creation. He'd been carrying it around with him, this memory of his childhood, obviously for a fair few years. And um, sometimes when you wish to express that, people can go like, yeah, we all had childhoods. Uh, You know, they, they mean all mean something to us. But for him to offer it up in such a manner to produce that kind of that soul and spirit and and warmth of the culture that he grew up in uh, and then open it up to the world. Um, I thought it was a remarkable achievement. And as the writer and the what we call the conductor or director to harness everybody, all the actors, the sound, the, the camera, the editing, to harness all that to make, uh, in the end, a very beautiful story about just a boy growing up and it could be anywhere in the world in the end. And uh, I think that's why it's touched so many people. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I did, then to hear the news that it had nominated uh, all over the place and uh, not to, to be a begrudger or anything, I was very disappointed for Katrina and Jamie, obviously, because they contributed so much, uh, you know, at the centre of, of this film, playing Ma and Pa. And, uh, and I said they were both magnificent. And Jude, of course, the little fella playing Buddy, Jude Hills, fantastic. So it wasn't, it's not that I was begrudging things, but I just felt a sort of a, a lack of, uh, a, a, of the fact that they weren't with us at the time because we had created quite a bond as a family. Yeah, I was also surprised to not see Katrina uh, mm. or Jamie listed because um, it really was, a, you know, such a wonderful ensemble as well. And and I know they'll be back. I, I will see their names on the Oscar nominations list, you know, in I'm another sure, I'm year. Sure you, I'm sure you will. I don't, I don't <laughs> think there's any much doubt about that. Yeah. So tell me, you know, about your first conversations with Kenneth Branagh about this, because obviously it's a tale so close to his his own upbringing, um, but also you're from Belfast as well. So what was it like to first talk about working on this together? Um, this was at the height of lockdown two years ago. It would have been June, I think, June or early July. And um, I was in Lyon in France because my wife is an actress and Hélène was working on a project in rehearsal in, in, in the theatre in Lyon. And I was there being the domestic char for a couple of weeks, taking care of everything. And uh, out of the blue, ha- happily uh, there, and out of the blue, I got a call from my agent who said, there's a fellow called Kenneth Branagh wants to talk to you. And Ken and I had never worked together and we'd only crossed paths once or twice for a quick hello and we were aware of each other. And he said about a project he's thinking of. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, he'd like to know if he might have a Zoom call with you tomorrow. And I said, certainly. So we met by Zoom and Ken told me that he had written this piece about his family and uh, would he mind if he sent me the script? And uh, I, I just love the way he put it. Would you mind if I sent you the script? You know, and rather than going like, I'm going to send you the script and I expect a reply, I said, would you mind? And uh, it was so gracious and warm the way he put it. And I said, I wouldn't mind at all, to be honest. And he sent it and... Uh, I, within a, a few pages of reading it, I, I, I knew that he had wrote, written something very, very uh, connected to both our roots. You know, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of made for international market or this is what I'm going to sell it. It was true to the spirit of the time, the people of the time, the characters, and um, it was full of humanity and warmth and and humor and wit and fun and to the backdrop of this terrible violence that was about to arrive in the province. And uh, it was a thrill to read, really. And because I think I come from there, I understood where Ken was coming from 
and it had no political agenda. At that, it, it wasn't about because a lot of people, when they talk about the politics of the North of Ireland, the Troubles, take agendas, and this was about the innocence of a young boy. Growing up, he didn't know anything about the world apart from the few streets that he went to live in through his school, his family, his community. And um, I thought it was just beautiful when I read it. And uh, when he asked me when I play Pop, his his grandfather, I thought I'd, I'd be a bit old now. And he said, no, my grandfather when I was nine. And I said, OK, I'm just probably in the right age gap. And um, I was so thrilled, genuinely thrilled, that he thought of me to play it. And uh, so it was a great honour for me. And then he threw into the mix rather easily. And of course, uh, Dame Judy will be playing your wife. Uh, and then I thought, well, there definitely be churlish to refuse that. So uh, I happily, happily and delightedly accepted. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good deal to, to get to work opposite Judy Dench. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, when you're reading this script or, or filming this, what did it make you think of about your own upbringing and sort of that time in your own life? Because you must have been about a teenager or so. When yeah, yeah, I, I would have been sixteen mm-hmm. when in 1969 when the uh, what we called the troubles broke out in, in August. Uh, yeah, those were very heady days, very heady days. We were uh, at that time of year. We were always on holiday. Just a family. So we were outside of Belfast, about 50 miles on the coast. My father, who was a, a GP, he was a doctor, and he would usually work through August, but in the last week, come and join the family. And I, it all sort of started happening in the middle of August. And uh, we got a call from him to say, I'm, I'm staying in Belfast because uh, I might be needed here. And um, and don't worry, uh, just stay there and then come back. So when I, we came back at the end of the month and you could feel the whole atmosphere of the city had changed. The whole atmosphere. There was, even though that the initial uh, movement of the violence and the sectarian division, it had come for a moment after a couple of weeks, but there was an atmosphere in the city that was kind of, uh, there was a sense of malevolence around. And in a way, the whole spirit of that, I suppose your teenage years had suddenly gone into kind of a dark place. Uh, and then we went back to school and, yeah, definitely things had changed. There was something in the air that, and that we, and a sense that it wasn't going to go away, you know, that it was going to be there for a while until serious issues were resolved. And so what was it like to sort of revisit this time when you were shooting this film? From my perspective, because we all have different perspectives, I guess, depending on what generation we're from or what age we are, uh, I actually went back. It touched me very much about my older generations, my father and my grandfathers, uh, because what Ken had written about was the type of almost the type of men they were. So, like, I was 16 at that time, but now I was playing a man of 70 at that time. Yeah. And suddenly it put me in mind of my father, who wouldn't have been quite 70 then, but also my grandfather. But the spirits of them, their whole sort of the essence of the soul of them was what Ken had captured. Even though he was talking about his own grandfather, he had the essence of mine in there as well. And even though Ken comes from the Protestant side of the community and I come from the Catholic side, it didn't matter because I guess it's that's the nature of the and the character of the people from that small area in the world, you know. They're rather stoical. They have this wry, dry sense of humor. They are. They have a sense of a morality about them. You know, I'm not talking about religious morality, just a sense of human decency. 
and an idea that the the world is a strange and difficult place, but you reach out and help where you can. I remember that from the my from growing up of uh, of the spirit of these people, and uh, I guess it also got to do because the fact there wasn't that so much technology around, where people get obsessed into the technology and close down their contact with other human beings directly. And then when I was growing up, that human contact and that and and also the not just the family but the extended family and the cousins and the community was very much part of our real life. And and that's what. Uh, Ken had captured uh, in his scenario. Uh, and so you're talking a little bit about, um, you know, thinking about your father and your grandfather. And I'm curious how that influenced um, Pop, because I do think the way, especially his physicality, I think is obviously very different than you are in person. So how did you decide how he would sort of carry himself? I thought um, also because as I've got older as well, I've put on weight, and also uh, as I think as we as we age, we sort of start oddly enough more resemble our parents as we get older. We have our own identity, and then whatever the DNA is kicks in, and we start to take on their kind of mantle. And I'd noticed that, or certain people had noticed it in me over the last ten years or so. How I'd be—they—they they hadn't mentioned before, but but how I was coming to resemble my father in these later years of my life, and uh, um, that was not obviously a choice I made. <laughs> That's <laughs> the gift of where you come from. Um, but what we know about the character of Pulp was he was not a well man. You know, he had uh, emphysema. He's from all the stuff in his lungs from working in coal mines and stuff, and he was near the end of his life. So, without trying to play. Uh, Play old because uh, you know Judy and I we decided let's meet in the middle between our ages somewhere you know vicariously in the middle somewhere uh, without definition of a specific number and um, because of the the idea of his illness that he wasn't going to overact or play it up it was just something he carried with him and he was quite stoic about it I thought that would give be a way in to how he might bear himself so just moving with a slight care of not uh, disturbing what was inside him. So it would just be rather slightly more sluggish or slightly more stooped, but without trying not to over accentuate that, because what you want is the, the spirit, the inner workings of the man, the intellect and the, the heart of the man. And um, I don't know, I, I noticed it actually when we actually went to the screening, the way when I got um, Judy up to dance. And I think maybe that's where you saw him being at his most physical when he tried to give her dance. And yet at the same time, there was something that wasn't able to release himself fully. And I think that the the fact that Ken had written into him that he was not long for the world, that this might have helped the, the with the age as well. Uh, yeah, it's beautifully done. I love that dance scene. I think it's so special. I know. We were going to go for a rumba and a bit of a foxtrot, but Ken wasn't having it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and did Ken ever say, you know, things like, oh, that's not how my grandfather would have done it? Or how did he sort of create those uh, walls between his own experience? He wasn't interested at all in any of us replicating his family. He made that clear. He said, I, I, I'm not, as you hear, to say my mother was like this, my father was, my grandfather. He, 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 what he did was, and quite brilliantly and very economically, given the time constraints we were in, 
There was one hour, like we met on a, a Monday morning when we all met for the first time, and we were going to be shooting by Wednesday or Thursday of that day. So, and we were under COVID uh, situation, everybody was very careful. So the four of us, with Ken in a corner, uh, everybody masked up, met around a big table, just the four of us. And Ken said, now, we don't have much time, but we're going to see if we can create a family. Very simple. And uh, he said, start with you, Katrina. Tell us, your, tell us about your childhood. And one by one, the four of us, told about our siblings, uh, what it was like, what we remember from our childhood, influences. And suddenly, within an hour, the four people knew a lot about each other, about where they came from, which, like in social terms, you would take a, a long while to find that. And Ken, I, I don't know, it's just brilliant, uh, being intuitive and intelligent. And suddenly... Inside that, as we know, oh, I know about your childhood. Why? How do I? Why I normally wouldn't? And suddenly, that made a bond between us that we'd opened up immediately to each other about our own histories. And in that way, uh, I think Ken made us because we were so open and sharing this information, our own private information with each other. Uh, it helped, I think, in creating the ambience and the atmosphere for whenever we went on set to work together. Sounds like he could have a. A side career as a therapist if this whole movie business doesn't work out for him. <laughs> yeah, there's, he has many, many strings to his his bow. And um, yeah, he probably could. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so tell me what it was like to, because I know there was a premiere in Belfast. What was that like to, to experience that? That was quite phenomenal. It was a hugely emotional evening for us and I think and hopefully for the people who are watching the film because you, you don't take it lightly to bring to Belfast you know this hard strong northern city a film the big title in capital letters Belfast this is you this is your city and you, you, you go in there at your peril in a way to say well what do you make of it because also the nature of of the of the northern Irish as well is you know they won't be told how things are or what's good or what's not, they will make up their own mind. They will have an attitude to it. But it's a, it's normally it's a very generous attitude and a warm attitude, you know? But it's not that they're going to be... They don't take things um, lightly and they don't take to people bigging themselves up very much just by the nature of the community there. And uh, so when we went, it was quite funny. I remember, because uh, it had opened, I believe, I was in Toronto... And we had just opened it in London for the for a film festival, and the reception was 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 very interesting to see to to watch that film with two thousand people and to see what happened to two thousand people who came in individually or in small groups to suddenly be breathing and feeling the same thing as they watched this story unfold. That was kind of for me a very deep and poignant moment because I had been working in Dublin and I just saw the screening myself from another person and I recognised that Ken had made a beautiful film and uh, I was very caught up in several moments emotionally but not like this watching it with a group of people. I mean, that's the humanity that's in the film that then reaches out and reminds us all of our own humanity, you know, and, and that was me. But then when we went to Belfast and... Um, I think Jamie was particularly nervous, as I remember. It was very sweet. He was going like, oh, I don't know about this. And um, knowing where we come from and the people. And uh, I was I was feeling a bit, it could go either way. You know, hedge your bets because we don't know. But it, inevitably, Ken made the most wonderful speech beforehand to the 1,800 people in the Waterfront Hall. 
a wonderful speech, so inclusive and so singularly uh, naming people who had been part of his childhood and, and people who had influenced. And he gives so much to, uh, even though he doesn't live there, so much to smaller community groups, his patrons of this and that. He really invests whatever time he has to the, the roots where he came from. And um, to be there with all my sisters and their, their kids and cousins and then friends that I hadn't seen for a very long time, uh, people coming out of the woodwork, as we say, and then and for this sort of rather joyous celebration. And I also, we had the benefit of the soundtrack of Van Morrison's music, which means so much to us in our culture and uh, because he's a Belfast boy and his music kind of hits us deep in our core. So when it kind of opens up and then invites people to come in, at the end of the film, there was this, there was a kind of, there was a kind of a little crackle in the air about just what everybody had watched. And um, when we met people afterwards, there was this um, genuine thrill that I think that we hadn't let them down, if you know what I mean. We hadn't disgraced them. And uh, that was very, very lovely. That sounds very rewarding. Uh, and and, I, and I, I saw the film at Telluride just a couple months uh, before that, and it was one of the first movies I had seen in a theater since the pandemic. And I, I do have to say this film is just sort of the perfect movie to see in a theater because it does have that movie-going aspect to it as well, and and you can really feel the emotion. So I, I can imagine how incredible that was in those premieres as well. Yeah, um, and Ken, yeah. I was going to say, and Ken's yeah. homage to his childhood going to the cinema. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the scenes of them going to the cinema and watching on the big screen in glorious Technicolor. You know, yeah. he's a, I mean, he's a great man of the, of the, of the theatre, but also of, of uh, film. And, uh, and he is referencing all those great American films uh, via television or cinema was, uh, was part of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, did you have a movie like that that you sort of remember seeing as a child that sort of, you know, blew you away like he, he does? You know, I would have been a bit older for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess he would have been about seven or or, or eight and uh, I'd been 15 and going like, oh, that's a bit, um, you know, looking for something more active or action based. Um, yeah. So I can't really remember anything that specifically struck me at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't a movie that you, a different movie that that you fell in love with or fell in love with movie going after seeing in the in the theater. A long while back, I do remember being kind of knocked out in by a film called Midnight Cowboy, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess I might have been seventeen or eighteen, thinking I've never seen anything like this in my life. You know, because when you're younger, you see films and it's usually uh, family films. And then this was something of, a, of an extraordinary uh, expression of lost souls in mm-hmm. a very grubby New York. Yeah, yeah that's that. a good one. So, you know, the Oscars are, are a few weeks away at this point. What are you looking forward to about, about attending and, and being there that night? Yeah, it's a very strange because I hope it's not too out-of-body experience because uh, it's something that... Uh, it's a far cry from that I was raised, and um, but having you know having such respect for a lot of a lot of the people who who work in in film and stuff, I think it'd be quite thrilling for me just to say hello to people, you know, to meet them and uh, have a word with people uh, that I might have respected them or might have a chance to meet them and just share a few words. I think that I'm looking forward to that, and 
my wife Elaine will be coming with me and uh, and yeah who knows what she'll get up to but it'll be great I mean in the two of us it'll be like um, you know the it's not quite Mr. Deeds goes to Washington but it's kind of like you know little family going into a, a big arena and um, I'm looking forward to it yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be nice to th- I think be around everyone again after after it's been so quiet for a while when it comes to events, you know. Yes, it is, and uh, I guess that celebration, that careful celebration of of the the culture that we're uh, trying to celebrate and uh, offer up to people as well, I think it I think it'll be very exciting. Yeah. And you've done, I mean, you've done so much wonderful work over the years, uh, you know, but actors always tell me they're still learning from every job. So I am curious, is there something you learned uh, making Belfast that you feel like you'll carry on with you to the next project and the next? I would hope, I guess it was got to do with the the ambience and the atmosphere that Ken was able to create mm-hmm. on set. And so it depends on which each new uh, project you go into. What is what what is the atmosphere that you're able to feel freer sometimes than you are at other times? And I don't mean by, by, by being constricted, but just having the confidence, the inner confidence, to not be fearful, to go like, what's expected, what 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 is required, and all that stuff that you know. As I one doubts oneself quite a lot to get to where one, and one can never have complete confidence, but you have to bite the bullet and go for it, and. Uh, Ken did create this atmosphere where we were just very, felt we were where we should be. And uh, that would be nice to have that. And the the idea of really listening to each other. Really listening to try and understand and connect with the other person. Hoping that the camera catches that, those moments of truth, as opposed to performance. Uh, Yeah, complicated business, actually. Yeah. You just need to have therapist Kenneth Brenner on all your sets. <laughs> I think he'd be rather busy, sadly. <laughs> that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. You can read so much coverage of last weekend's awards events and next weekend's award of awards events and everything in between at VanityFair.com. You can follow us on Twitter at LittleGoldMan and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. You could also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7180. Please keep your comments coming. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best prediction of what the Oscar producers will say when this year's ratings come in goes to David Canfield. We've had a step down. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.